Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures, an early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is John Levisay, CEO of The Pros Closet, the largest e-commerce company in biking. Prior to The Pros Closet, John was the co-founder and CEO of Craftsy, an online education e-commerce marketplace that he led from zero to over 80 million in revenue, culminating in a successful sale to NBC Universal in 2017 for $225 million. Before Craftsy, John's held executive leadership roles at eBay and at HomeAdvisor, and in the ultimate demonstration of John's good judgment, he actually hired me in 2009, which is what got me out to Colorado. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there's so much we can cover. We'd love to just start with, tell us about what you're up to today running the, uh, the Pros Closet. Yeah. So currently I'm CEO of the Pros Closet, which is a Colorado-based company, uh, the largest reseller of certified pre-owned bikes in the world. I had been on the board for, for a number of years, and when my last earnout kind of per my last company ended, I uh, was approached to to come on board and and uh, you know as the founder kind of wanted to step more into a founder role. Uh, Nick Martin was the founder. It was actually during COVID, so at that point I had been kind of sitting around the house for about four or five months, and when the opportunity came up, my my wife said, when can you start? So it was, and I'm being a bit facetious, but it was actually, a, it was a great fit. It ticked a lot of boxes with regard to, it was a marketplace business, which I've been working in on and off for 20 years. It's in Colorado, great investors, good team, and an industry that desperately needs kind of innovation. And so it was, that was about two years ago. So it's been great. And what's it been like going to come in as a CEO? You're on the board, but coming in as a hired CEO versus with your previous company, Craftsy, you obviously started it or, or a co-founder and, and CEO. Yep. It's it's definitely a different, I, I think, challenge from a cultural perspective. You know, it's no secret of uh, transitioning founders can be a can be an issue, right? And and it's they cast a long shadow often. And a third kind of complicating factor has been COVID. You know, the first year, a lot of people are still working full-time away from the office. And even since, there are functions that have persisted as remote. It's made creating a culture harder. I think it's remote works very well for discrete tasks, accounts payable, etc. Where remote becomes difficult is uh, cross-functional, complicated strategic initiatives. I've continually been frustrated at the speed and execution of some of those major initiatives. And I keep coming back to remote has been a, has been a problem there. So there's, there's that. Uh, then I think you have to win over as you come in as a, a non-founder CEO, you have to kind of be very explicit about and I think deferential to the history, but also excited and paint a, a good vision and picture about the future. 
And so I've, I've tried to do that. I think we've successfully done that. I think bringing in new people is also a, a balance to try to make sure you promote from within as well as bring in your own people. Um, and I think it's it's been made largely easier that Nick and I have a good relationship. He was obviously in the business for 10 years. He has great pattern recognition and knows the product, knows the customer. These are these are very helpful backdrop for me as I learn the industry. And I'll I'll, I'll finish with this. I'm a big believer in hiring athletes and or mathletes, right? Who are generalists who have been in multiple businesses who can come in and, and contribute. I.e., you don't have to have a a bike background to to come and work at the pros closet. However, something that I've had to reiterate is once you do come into pros closet, even if you don't have a bike background, you have to take the time to learn the industry and learn it fast. You know, I I, I think many there are people with multi skills, but you don't get to say six months or eight months into a job, well, I'm just not a bike person. I don't understand that. That 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 can't be. And that's whether it's quilting or biking or home improvement professionals. It's incumbent upon you once you join the company to, to learn that industry inside and out. John, uh, similar to me, I know you're a Bay Area transplant to Colorado. Um, would love to hear a bit about you know, when you arrived here, um, how it felt versus the Bay Area, and then how you've seen the Colorado ecosystem evolve in the time that you've been here from sort of the, the tech ecosystem and everything going on here. Interesting. I, I relocated from San Francisco in August of 2008 uh, and took a job here at Home Advisor. I think at the time when I left California, which is still have a lot of great friends out there. There's a lot of good that goes on, obviously an epicenter for for the things we do, but also can fall victim to a bit of myopia, I think. Uh, you know, and everyone told me when I left, be careful if this job doesn't work out, you're going to be on an island out there. Whereas if something doesn't work out in the Bay Area, you can walk across the street. Turns out in 2010, when I began to look, they were actually right. Um, there wasn't a lot of depth of opportunity out here in 2010. That's the biggest thing that's changed in the 13 years henceforth to me. There's just a, a depth and breadth of opportunity and a caliber of professional here coming up on 15 years later that is you don't have to be reticent to move from a Boston or New York or Austin or Silicon Valley to, and come to Denver and feel like you're on an island, right? There's a there's a community here. There's at various stages of seed, Series A and late stage that that you can find great opportunity. And I think that's a function of investment dollars flowing in and, and savvy investors. I think it's a function of transplants coming in and elevating a lot of the kind of the cohorts that were already here, and as well as the first or second gen of best and brightest not leaving Colorado, who formerly would have reloaded out, have stayed. And so it's it's kind of a, 
evolving ecosystem that's become higher caliber with regard to opportunity and output. Uh, that would be my take. Yeah, it's interesting, John. We made a decision to move from the Bay Area in January 2019. And my wife also works in tech as well. And we felt even back in 2019, the ecosystem was at such a point. We didn't actually know what we were going to do when we made the decision to move, right? And we sort of said, it's big enough, it's growing fast enough that we'll find something interesting to do in the ecosystem. And that was 2019, right? You know, fast forward to where we're at today. And I think everything that led to us feeling comfortable doing that is now 5X, 10X from talent opportunity here in the ecosystem. Yeah. And I I think one of the, this is a bit of an intangible, but I think it's, it's valid and it's it's something to talk about, which is that there was a period between 2010 and kind of 2016 or 17, where the biggest pitch was 300 days of sunshine and uh, great powder days and, you know, lifestyle. And that's not what high potential meat eaters want to come for. They want to come to work with super smart people and to build something great and to make some money. And that doesn't mean powder days off every week and sunshine because you're inside a lot, working your tail off. So lifestyle is still important. I think we all know that and having access to it is important, but that should not be your lead punch when you're trying to recruit the best and brightest. And I think I feel like over the last few years, and maybe I'm hearing what I want to hear, but that that's been less of the pitch for this market as opposed to, look, there's exits here. There's good companies. There's investment dollars. Yeah. I mean, John, the way I I thought about it and, and think about it and talk to people is you can be just as ambitious here now as anywhere in the country from people, capital, opportunities to pursue but you don't have to make the sacrifices you are making on lifestyle to achieve those on the coasts in the same way. And so that's what I think is attracting the caliber of people that we're talking about. I agree. You mentioned a bunch of companies, different stage. What's one that you're particularly excited about here that's not, not pros closet? Yeah. I mean, the company that I'm kind of, I followed just because we're of similar vintage to Craftsy is, is Ibotta. And, you know, I I see the growing pains there and the kind of their evolution and Brian Leach's leadership and just continued to be impressed. It's a pretty Herculean feat to everyone kind of has this fantasy that you're in and out, right? It's like you found a company and four years later, five years later, this magnificent event happens and, and you go on your way. These are eight to 10 year, 15 year commitments. And the the kind of the way Ibotta has persevered through the, the various stages is super impressive. And then I, and then I look at other companies like, and, and this is a great, I think, lesson for all entrepreneurs is Brian has a, a big vision, like and the, the amount of capital they've raised, the size of the business they are, they have a set of goals that are pretty apparent. Then you have a company like Revel One. And, and I think, you know, I know you've had Gary on the show, and, and there's someone who's never taken a dollar of venture capital and has built an extremely successful and lucrative business that's well regarded by, by both 
VCs and companies and and individuals as a, a real leader in the in the kind of you know executive search space that's, that's put almost a, a more cerebral kind of twist on it and and that's a that's a very different kind of company and so two examples of, of great companies that I have a lot of respect for absolutely we uh, Brian and, and Gary have both been on on the podcast they're awesome and I think everybody you know in Colorado is really cheering for Ibotta to hopefully have a successful IPO. As Brian said, that's what they want to do in the next yep. year or two if, if the window opens up, and that'll be what continues to feed the ecosystem. Joe, let's segue to you know what we'd love to talk to you about, which is your your biggest lesson. Fortunately, you know, working with you years ago, I've got to hear some of them myself. I know you got a lot, a lot of a lot of nuggets of wisdom you picked up along the way, but would love to hear if you could distill your biggest one and and maybe a, a story or two to illustrate and how you apply that today. I think we all look as young professionals. We look up. I'll use an example from real life. When you're when you're a young child, when you're fifth or sixth grade or even high school, you look up at people being married, and you think like, "Wow, someday it all makes sense and it's easy." Um, and you get married and have children, and you're just in love forever. And sometimes, then you become an adult, and you realize, "Wow, this is super hard, and I I, I need to evolve and learn." And there's new lessons every day about uh, raising children and about being in a committed relationship that are great lessons and you continue to develop. It's no different than the professional realm. I would have thought in my 20s that by the time I was 50, I would pretty much know everything and be on autopilot. But the learnings and the lessons continue to come fast and furious. You, You tend to append them onto already existing belief structures and philosophies. But man, it's I have learned as much in the last two years as I did 20 years ago. So that's it's a interesting phenomenon. And I think the time as soon as you stop learning lessons, you become an ideologue and think you have it all figured out and are probably somewhat of a, a menace to work with. If I had to like kind of distill a major lesson that I've learned over over the last 10 to 15 years. The answer, the initial answer is going to be somewhat probably something a lot of people say, but but I'm going to give it a one of those incremental learnings on top of it that I think make it a valuable lesson. So the the initial lesson is that at the end of the day it is absolutely about the people you surround yourself with. I think one of the dangers of the fetishization of tech founders is that there's somehow a presumption that they are all knowing and these these kid geniuses. And and this and you know there's a good article recently in Esquire about the kind of social media CEOs. They've all were were lauded as these as these absolute omnipotent geniuses. And now they've all had kind of a a reckoning, if you will. And I think that's the danger of reading your own press clippings and stop and not surrounding yourself with people who will push back. And you see this in multiple realms of life where people become power, too much power corrupts, I think. And you need to, you need to listen to people. So I think surrounding yourself as a founder, there's an old saying like sevens kill companies, right? And, and because sevens hire fives and they're just good enough that you don't let them go. 
But if you have eights, nines, and tens around you, they hire tens and it elevates everyone's game. And you get the center of excellence where there, there are robust data and fact-based debates about execution and strategy that end up yielding a better outcome than if you as a CEO made the call in a vacuum or anyone else did. So I think it's it's absolutely critical to to bring in and surround yourself with people who are top notch and who aren't afraid to express their opinions and push back. Here here's the the nuance that I've learned I think after that. I I knew that or held that principle when I co-founded Craftsy and brought in, continued to bring in smart people that fit that mold. Here's the the danger with that, is that if, if you, while it's extremely important to have robust debates and and everyone being able to kind of express their opinions, it can cross over into too much of a debate-driven culture and a almost a, 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 almost have, a, have an alternative effect at some point where you get into too prolonged of debates or people tend to feel so validated that they feel perhaps licensed to pursue their own angle on strategy, even in the face of a debate that kind of decided otherwise. And I guess what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, someone has to be the decider and there has to be a culture that is has robust debate, but then a, a clear decision and a disagree and commit. And if someone can't get on board with that, th- then it's not a fit, no matter how smart they are, no matter how much they push back. If someone can't get in line with the, with the ultimate decision that's made, then that's problematic as well. So I, I think there's a fine line between things getting too collegial, too multi-input, and, and, and the kind of alternative. So th- that's a big lesson for me. You, you got to take the inputs, have the debate make a decision, make sure everyone's on board with that decision, and then move quickly and not have second guessing. Yeah, John, I've seen that for my own career too, that sometimes the people who are most willing to engage vigorously in the debate are the least likely to disagree and commit if it's not the side that they were pushing, right? Correct. And to your point, it, it is the people that can disagree and commit or, or commit to the, the agreement and go execute. Um, what type of people have you found in terms of background or skill set that are good at that? And how have you learned to screen for that in interviewing and hiring? I think people are a product of their upbringing, largely, as far as their level of comfort with disagreement and with kind of debate, contentious debate occasionally. I'll use my former co-founder and friend, Josh Scott, as an example. Josh grew up in a family, attorneys (laughs) at the dinner table, and uh, Josh is one of the most comfortable people I've ever met at having 
at having debates that that may turn contentious and then afterwards walk away and say, okay, I said my piece. Uh, And oftentimes, advice being Josh being a smart, great professional, he's very convincing. You go that direction. Other times, not. And, and and Josh is very comfortable. Was very comfortable with with maybe going a different direction. So I think a lot of it is how people were kind of how they grew up at the dinner table. Are there certain things you just never talk about? Are there things that, uh, or is everything on the table for discussion uh, and debate? I mean, I've asked people before, like, tell me a little bit about when you were growing up. What'd you talk about at the dinner table? <laughs> were there things you did your family have open discussions? And some and people are very honest about it. They're like, no, we just, there's some, certain things that were off limits. We just didn't talk about. And that's an interesting insight. And, and I think I, I also often tend to find that li- folks with a liberal arts background, whether it be political science or philosophy, often come more equipped to be intellectually flexible around debates than folks who came solely from quantitative educational background, where engineering, not a lot of debate, right? There's there's pretty binary outcomes. So I found it historically, folks who had a combination of both quant and qual can be very good on the debate side. John, how do you think, one of the things we work with founders a lot, I'd love to get your take on this. You talked about hiring eights, nines, and tens, right? And they can kind of replicate themselves and enhance the organization. We see a lot of founders who don't know how to identify those people, right? Out of the gate at first. And then and then even more so, you know, don't know how to say this person's really a seven versus a 10 when they get in there. Because it's usually somebody who has a great resume, talks the talk right? That's table stakes to get in as a C-level or, or you know, VP level at a, at, at a company, especially in an area that the founder doesn't have personal expertise or experience in. Something we work with companies a lot. I'd love to know your, your take on that and anything you've seen that, that works. Yeah, it's a great thought. I mean, I, th- I think two elements of that. One is identifying those people. And, and that is, look, I'm, I'm not a software engineer. So my ability to diagnose actual code is is less than zero. So how do how does someone who's who who's not an engineer or not a product person interview someone who is and really try and suss out? I, I think there are there are ways to do that. There are kind of standard questions to to kind of discern how someone thinks. But in many cases, there rely on if I if I was a 27-year-old founder and you were looking at investing in my idea, that's where I think investors add incredible value and no one uses them enough, which is, hey, Adam, we're looking at this VP of product or this VP of engineering. I want to put him through a decent battery of interviewing. I don't have the expertise. No one on the team does. Can you put to help us put together a slate to interview this person? And you would say, of course, I'll call these three CTOs who I know very well, and we're we're happy to do that for you. So again, it's it's looking outside your own realm to to put together a package or an interview slate with people who know that domain. I, I think that is a it's it's an absolute must, and, and I think it's a good 
adjunct, even if you have some people internally. I mean, the problem with with interviewing is it's very inexact science, and and I think you you base it on a few hours of talking to somebody, and particularly in in uh, we just talked about engineering. Actually, in many ways, that that could be one of the easier ones. The tougher ones often are marketers who are very polished at telling you what you want to hear and kind of and sales john sales even oh, worse. yeah i mean <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna come in and they're they're not dumb they look at their resume they know where their holes are and they're gonna have prepared answers that are very good for those questions and you're gonna if they can't sell themselves yeah right? that's yeah tables you're gonna walk away saying wow that person's dialed and, yeah. and then later find out oh no maybe not so much so i think in that case that that's where the kind of radical referencing where they give you three references and, and like just assume those are going to be glowing right or they wouldn't have given them to you you got to go find three or four more people look on linkedin where they worked go through your channels and, and i've had a few that where that was the difference maker where even if you send it an email to four or five people and say, hey, I'm looking at hiring Tom for this position. Um, would love to hear your thoughts. And, and if you don't hear back like, from any of them, that's a sign. Um, often people in references will tell you things without telling you. And, and you don't, don't use it as a kind of fait accompli, like, oh, I just have to go through this unless they say, don't hire that person. We're good to go. Because probably you're exhausted. You're tired of looking. And you've got like deal fever a little of you like this person, you want to hire them. I've had situations where six months in, a year in, after hiring somebody, trouble spots began to rear their head. And I thought back to the to the to one of the references. And I'm like, damn it. She was trying to tell me that that this person does not react well to not getting their way or they can become somewhat combative when put like, and you're like, they didn't say it exactly, but they kind of did. And so I, I've gotten much more deliberate about references and asking harder questions to people who probably weren't on the list initially. Yeah, John, I think that's, that's great. I mean, if you can find back channel references, it's always the way to go. It's certainly what we do as well when we're diligencing uh, companies. But I think just to wrap this point up, there is some art in talking to even given references, the ones that, that are selected, you know, are going to say glowing things that you can really highlight how glowing is this. And, and the yeah. question I've always liked, and I'm sure there's better ones, is the, hey, relative to people you've worked with, would you say this person is one of the top one or two people you've ever worked with, right? Because it really pins them down. And I've heard people, be, well, well, I mean, no, I mean, not, <laughs> they're, they're great, but I mean, not, you know, like, <laughs> now let's really dive into why not. Yeah, so I think and, and that's like, you're right. You're, you're essentially giving them an out, which is yes. you don't have to say anything bad about the person. Just you're not putting them in your, on the podium, then I gotcha. Yeah, that's exactly. A, that's, a nice but that's, always the, that's always the challenge is figuring this stuff out. John, thanks. Great lesson. Super important. Where can listeners follow uh, along with what you guys are up to at uh, Pro's Closet? In addition to, kind of selling a lot of bikes and parts, accessories, and gear. We also have, you know, really 
kind of invested in the last year in a in a content offering. I think it's a great way to follow the company, follow the industry, get inspired is our our blog slash magazine. It's a great way to kind of, you know, we believe that in high passion, high avidity categories like cycling, it's extremely important to build a, a relationship with our customer by inspiring, educating, and, and bringing folks along and engaging in their hobby, e.g. making us an identity feed for cyclists as opposed to just relying on the the Death Star of Google and, and Facebook. So anytime you come to the site, there's great gear reviews, exciting kind of testimonials and things. I think if you're a cyclist or want to be a cyclist, it's a very open tent, great place to come, kind of learn more about the industry and what's going on and, and, and about our company and the sport in general. Great, John. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, guys. 